But I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5. We pick up our story where we left last week. For those of you who were here last week, though, we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 5 with a very uh, different scene, a very different problem. If you don't have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to follow along in the bulletin insert your The passage for this morning is found there. Nehemiah chapter 5. Listen as I read. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Foreclosures of property, corporate greed, over-the-top lending fees. These are the kind of headlines that we see today in our own newspapers, on our own news channels. And yet according to chapter 5, these were also the headlines of the Jerusalem Gazette, so to speak. What exactly is happening here? And where are all those enemies that we were talking about just one week ago? Well, those of you who were here last week will remember where we are in the story. There were some of you who weren't here. Let me review just briefly. Nehemiah is our main character of this story. He has been called by God to lead this huge rebuilding project in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you see, is God's city. It is the prize city. It is the New York City of ancient Israel. And even more, because it has religious significance that is deep in the culture of God's people. And God's people are returning after years and years in exile, and they are beginning to rebuild the city. They're beginning to rebuild their way of life, and it began with the temple going up, but now the walls that protect that city, the walls that protect that temple, now they must go up. But not all are happy that the Israelites have returned. Not all are happy that the Jews are there. And as we looked at last week, there began in our story opposition, name-calling, threats. All these began to accompany the work that God was doing through His people. And God's Word reminded us last week that this really shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that when we are seeking to be faithful to what God calls us to be and to what God calls us to do, we often will suffer. We often will face opposition. And opposition is just a reminder for us that this is not our work. That we are dependent And that going to the Lord in prayer is a crucial part of our existence, of our service, of our walking with the Lord, because it's His work. But now in our story, where are those enemies? We've advanced a bit somewhat in time. Not sure where this event of chapter 5 fits in the story. But we think that the enemies are probably still there. 
The daggers are still by God's people's sides. The threat is still in the back of people's minds, and yet suddenly the shouting outside of the walls of Jerusalem has silenced. And now what's happening now, there are cries within the walls of Jerusalem. You see, the threat from afar has now become the threat from within. What can we learn from this? What can we who sit here today learn from such a story? Well, I think we can learn several things, but they're all under one truth. One point. Yes, a one-point sermon today. And it's this. God's work must proclaim and live mercy and grace. God's work must live and proclaim mercy and grace. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, we've been talking about God's work. This has been our theme. That this is God's work. This is what God's doing. That we gathered here this morning. This is about God's work. It's about Him. It's not about us. It's about doing His will. It's about being who He's called us to be. And in the Old Testament, God's work was most directly, most specifically in the book of Nehemiah, about building a wall. About being faithful to God by building a wall. And for us now today, we're not building a wall. We're building a living structure. God's people are being gathered. We are being preserved. We are participating in this work of the kingdom, of the church, of God calling a people to Himself. That is God's work, is us being what He calls us to be and doing what He calls us to do. And yet in both eras, in Nehemiah's day and in our day, God is still the same. And His work is still our work. And we are still to proclaim who He is. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy in that He does not give us what we deserve. He's a God of grace in that He gives us what we don't deserve. And you who know and love Christ know that this grace is at the heart of the gospel message that we live and that we proclaim a grace that has come to us in fullness in the person of Jesus, the God of our salvation, Yahweh saves. Well, let's unpack it. Let's unpack that point from the story. There's a cry in the land. And this is not just a a murmur. This is a cry. This is the same word that's used in Exodus 3 when the Lord heard about His people crying for Him in the land of Egypt. God's people are in distress. And we're given no indication in the text that they are at fault for the distress that they are experiencing. In fact, it seems that that what they are experiencing is totally outside of them. First of all, first of all, there is a lot of energy that is going to this wall. 
There's a lot of energy that's going to this wall. I've reminded you over and over again that this was no small task. This was a huge task. And it's easy for us to read this passage and to somehow, somehow imagine in our minds that this is like asking your neighbor to come over to your house to help build a couple fences or to dig a couple post holes. When it's not like that at all. It's not even close. Folks had come from miles and miles around. Folks from all skill levels, from all ages. And in an agrarian society with farms that are built around families, what this meant is that farms lost workers. They lost farmhands. They lost harvesters. That's the first issue. And the second issue is that there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. And that famine, that lack of rain has made harvest, whatever harvest there was, difficult. It had made food prices soar up, out of reach for some people, particularly those families that were large, that had lots of mouths to feed. And then thirdly, to top it all off, there were, there's the Persian tax. The Persians were notorious for their taxation of the people under their rule. Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's former employer, was notorious for the taxes that he levied on the people that he conquered. And they had to pay them. And so these three factors are creating a society of people who in large measure are poor are hungry, and are struggling to help themselves all because of circumstances that are out of their control. And yet, that's not all. In fact, that's not even the half of it. That's not even the heart of the issue, the heart of our story this morning. Because, you see, remedies had been put forth to help these people. These people who had been plagued with these things outside of their control. And it's the remedies that Nehemiah is so angry with in verse 6. Because the heart of the issue is God's people's indebtedness. The heart of the issue is their indebtedness. You see, people were struggling And seeing the opportunity, there were certain creditors who stepped in to lend a helping hand. They saw an opportunity. We'll make a buck. So they were charging interests on loans. High interest. And these were not loans to buy the latest plasma TV or the latest electronic gadget. These were loans just to pay, just to, just to pay for food to feed my kids. And they were taking fields, they were taking property, they were taking farms as pledges, much like the pawn shops do. I'll take this until you can repay, and then you'll get it back. Maybe the worst of it is that some of these Jews were in such a bad situation that they, 
their indebtedness was causing them to be enslaved again. These folks who had just been out, who had just come out from under the bondage of slavery and indebtedness are now having to let their sons and their daughters be sold to others to pay off their debts. Now to be honest, these kinds of practices, even that last practice that we just find abominable in our modern society, these were not unbelievable. They were not all that uncommon in the ancient world. And so what is the big deal? What's the big deal? The big deal is that these people are not the world. These people are God's people. These people are the Jews. They are to be different. And these greasy creditors are not Ammonites. They're not Arabs. They're not Ashdodites. They are Jews. If you have your Bibles, turn with me real quickly to Leviticus chapter 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 25, starting at verse 35. If your brother becomes poor, this is spoken to God's people. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and he sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve you with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his clan and return to the possession of his fathers. And it goes on and on. Flip a couple books forward to the book of Deuteronomy just so, just so you see that this wasn't some hidden law deep in the annals of Jewish life. No, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are now entering to take possession of it. You see, in blatant disregard, in blatant disregard for the law of the Lord, these Jews focused on their own self-interest. They forgot about the, the, the plight of their own people. 
And they ignored any sense of responsibility to the people in their midst, and they treated them as if they were a transaction that they could simply make another buck off of. You see, it was this kind of oppression, it was this kind of treatment of the weak that got them into the exile in the first place. Listen as I read Amos chapter 2. The Lord says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. See, Nehemiah is enraged. And he's enraged for good reason. God's work, God's people are supposed to live and proclaim God's mercy and God's grace. And instead, God's people look even worse than the cutthroat world around them. And there's something interesting for us to note in this passage before we even move on. What does this teach us? It's a good question to ask whenever we come to a passage of God's Word. What does this passage teach us about us? About the nature of man? I know that we are not them. I know that many of us think that we would act completely differently if we were in that situation. And I'm confident that some of us would, but I'm also confident that some of us wouldn't. Because it's the natural bent of man to pursue his own self-interest at the expense of others. And we may hide behind a business transaction, we may hide behind some so-called good, but either way, The evil one knows our hearts. And it reminds us not only what our hearts are like, but it reminds us that this battle is a spiritual battle. In Nehemiah's day and in our day, it's a spiritual battle. This is a work of God against those who oppose God. It's almost as if the evil one tried the outside approach of, of Sanballat and, and Tobiah and their threats. It's almost as if he tried that approach, and so now he turns to another approach, approach he knows all too well, the opportunistic human heart. I think this passage just reminds us to have a realistic view of who we are. And that that knowledge would guard us, would sensitize us against trampling on others, even when we have the right to do so, even when it's not a direct violation of God's law. Yes, what God's people did here in Nehemiah chapter 5 was absolute rebellion. But God speaks to feeling that responsibility, to living and proclaiming that mercy and grace not just when it's absolutely wrong to do otherwise, but even when it impinges on our, on our perceived rights. See, the exercise of rights, entitlement, that's a big thing in our culture. 
You're entitled to this. And in fact, our culture has exalted our rights and our entitlement to a status that is frankly just ridiculous. Paul spoke on two different occasions. The Apostle Paul spoke on two different occasions as he wrote to the New Testament churches. He spoke about occasions where our perceived rights intersect with our responsibility to our brothers and sisters. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Both unique situations that demand us to give up our rights, to leave our rights behind if it impinges on God's work or on God's people. And this can be a problem for us. Even in our so-called Christian liberty, we can go awry on this point if we're not remembering our responsibility to our brothers and sisters. God's work is supposed to live and proclaim God's mercy and God's grace. And so back to our story. What, what does Nehemiah do? What does Nehemiah do? We already said he gets angry, but he models something for us. He doesn't just get angry and stew in his anger, but he gets angry and he does something about the injustice that he sees. He doesn't fly off the handle. In fact, there's an interesting phrase used here in Nehemiah. He says, I took counsel with myself. We don't know exactly what he's saying there. Maybe one version says, I mastered my feelings. But he took counsel with himself. He thinks rationally. And then he he essentially calls a congregational meeting. He calls a congregational meeting. Meeting And he, he doesn't do so as he assembles an, a team of lawyers, a team of law experts who will come with chapter and verse to cite the violations that have, been, that have occurred. Now what does he do? He simply appeals to the relationship. Verses 7 and 8. You are exacting interest from your brother. We have bought back our brothers who have been sold to the nations, but even you sell your brothers. See, really the only why that he needed to give at this congregational meeting was, you broke the law. You violated God's command, and yet he focuses on love in this situation. These are your brothers. And then he does go on. He says, think about your God. Think about the fear of the Lord, as he says in verse 9. And think about the message that you are sending. Because God's work must not only live grace internally, but that's why I said it must proclaim grace. It must proclaim grace. By God's grace... These words that he spoke, they cut to the heart of those whom they were spoken to. And these creditors agreed to return everything that had been mortgaged and pledged. And effective 
immediately to not charge any more interest. And it seems in some way, we don't know how, but in some way, Nehemiah himself was mired in this. That he was not without guilt. That somehow he and his brothers and his associates had been involved, at least in the preliminary stages of charging interests. And so he humbles himself. And then he does something which is so foreign to us. So foreign to us. He calls in the priests, making this not just a civic ceremony, but now it's a religious ceremony. The priests are now here, and what does he do? He makes them swear. He makes them take an oath. And then he does this symbolic shaking out of the garment, which to our modern ears that take commitments so casually, it just seems so odd. And yet for God's people, now this was serious. This was before God. This was commitment with a curse that was visualized for them. And I think the worship that results in our passage is indication that they took this seriously. See, the church is the proclamation of God's grace to the world. How we mistreat one another or how we treat one another either sullies or carries the message that we speak with our lips. How we love each other either exalts or demeans the God who is behind that message of grace. How many churches, how many local congregations have been destroyed by those who disregard their brothers and sisters and just pursue their own self-interests? How many marriages, how many families have been destroyed by those who disregard the interests of their brother or sister and instead pursue their own pleasure, their own satisfaction. God's work, God's people must lay aside their own self-interest and live and proclaim God's mercy and God's grace. That's the message of this passage this morning. But there's a whole other section in our passage, Nehemiah 5, and I don't want to ignore it The ending section, it sounds as if Nehemiah is just kind of going off, tooting his own horn, right? Extolling all that he has done, maybe trying to make up for the mistakes that he had made earlier. Well, let's give Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt. He probably didn't know that his words were going to be inscripturated for all of time. But this is true. This is for certain that Nehemiah did want to lead by example. Nehemiah is a leader. And so we fast forwarded in time and Nehemiah is looking on his 12 years as serving governor. And he says, I didn't exercise my right 
to the special allotment of food. I didn't put those heavy tax burdens on you. I focused on the Lord's work rather than my own personal wealth. And I actually supported you rather than you supporting me. And we think, that sounds like a great politician. See, in the same way Paul defends himself to the churches of the New Testament, he defends himself for what he had suffered, for what he had taken and not taken on account of the gospel. Because he knew, Paul knew, like Nehemiah knew, that his example would be powerful. That it would be the kind of example that would speak to both believer and unbeliever concerning the kind of God that he served. God's work must live and proclaim God's mercy and grace, but especially those who lead God's work. Who are called to lead God's work. You see, in the city of God, the norm of the world isn't to be. God has ordained that His leaders be servants. That they give more than they receive from those that follow them. We all remember the fall of of communism years ago. And after the fall of communism, as we got a glimpse of what was behind the curtain, so to speak, we learned of what godless leadership looked like while common people stood in line to buy food, scarce food. The author Chuck Colson tells of the Ceausescus of Romania. And he writes this, while their people competed for bony chickens and occasional pork knuckles, The Ceausescu's and top party officials had difficulty keeping their cholesterol levels in check. A menu from a birthday dinner for Elena Ceausescu read like this. Three kinds of caviar, filet mignon, baby pork, pork chops, pork loin, venison, roast turkey, Cornish game hens, pheasant, lobster, frog's legs, smoked salmon, and three kinds of trout. You see how different God's people and God's leaders are called to be. How different Nehemiah was. How different Paul was. But as we think about all this servant leadership, there is, of course, one example, one powerful example that trumps them all. In Matthew chapter 20, the sons of Zebedee, two of the disciples, they come with their mother. I love this story. They come with their mother to Jesus. And mom has a request for Jesus. Jesus, could you say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom? What a great request. What a bold request. And what does Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. And it's not mine to give. But all of you, as the disciples are fuming over this request from mom, Jesus says, all of you listen to this. 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve. Not to be served, excuse me. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus would live out those words, wouldn't he? Jesus would put those words into practice. He would proclaim the grace that is behind those words as he willingly let himself go to the cross. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. This is grace. This is grace worthy to be lived out in our relationships with others. This is grace worthy to lay aside our own interests for the interests of others. This is grace to be extended to those who don't deserve it. This is grace to be proclaimed to the world. This is what God's work is about. This is what God's people are about. May God give us the strength to be as we are called. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word once again this morning. We thank you for the truth. We thank you most of all for our Savior. As we turn our thoughts to that night when he sat with his disciples, that night when the humbling that he had endured for many years on earth came to a head, came to a point as he became obedient to the point of death. Father, we pray that that grace shown us at the cross might invigorate us to live in the same way Holy Spirit, have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.